Welcome to the Just Larson Show on Innovation and Leadership. Uh, this episode, we've got Andrew Peake. Andrew, thanks for doing this. My pleasure. Good to meet you. So uh, tell us about your company and AI and investing and all the cool stuff. Well, the company's called Delphia, which is a nod to uh, Greek history, uh, where Apollo used to get his oracles or his predictions. And we use AI to manage people's money. Uh, we do this uniquely for both a non-accredited and accredited, accredited uh, audience. So we have investors who cut across the entire spectrum. And we think we have a pretty uh, significant leap forward in how quantitative investing is done, which is to say how machine learning is deployed. Happy to get into that throughout the show. Uh, and then on top of that, we've layered a, a fairly unique business model where folks can have their money managed uh, for free if they're willing to contribute their personal data towards improving our stock selection algorithms. Let's start with, I've heard you talk a little bit about kind of the two labs that combined to become Delphia. Can you give us a bit of that history? Yeah, so the first lab that I came across, um, they had built a long-form survey that had a really noble mission. They wanted to help people use their, uh, their data to calculate their alignment to the different candidates running in a given election. And so people would invest, you know, 10 minutes, many Canadians, many people around the world have used this tool actually called Vote Compass. And, you know, after about 50 questions, it would uh, spit out a result to this like really detailed artifact or infographic that would show your alignment to the different candidates that were running. People loved the results so much, they would share it on their social. So at the time that would have been Facebook and Twitter. And so you had this unique way to sort of marry this really deep, rich understanding of a person with their social media behavior. And the two are used in combination to then forecast the election outcome, the entire distribution. And the group had unprecedented accuracy doing this. They were outperforming local polling agencies all over the world. You know, most notably, they called Brexit 10 days before the vote, which was a very surprising outcome for everybody. And so that was the first lab I came into contact with. Um, you know, I fell in love with the characters, the lab's director. I, uh, I thought they had a set of novel methods and I was intrigued by their mission to help people use their data to their benefit. Uh, I didn't think elections was necessarily the, the big, biggest stage they could play on. Um, but that brings us to lab number two. When I sort of took a, a stake in the first lab, we went looking for a much larger context where we could help people get benefit from their data. And we came across a research lab inside of the Canada Pension Plan Investment Board that was run by my now partner, Jonathan Briggs. And Jonathan was the managing director of the Quant Equity Group over there. And they had developed a new way to forecast capital markets, the, the stock market, and uh, had created a bit of a competition uh, where you know, technology or data companies could see if they could outperform CBP, IB's, you know, predictions on certain fundamentals. And if you could, there was, you know, a payout to be had. And in Delphia's case, we thought that would be uh, interesting to spread that payout across all those contributing data. Ultimately, though, we realized that to build a very big business, we actually needed to become an asset manager ourselves. And we couldn't just be sort of a, a signal in somebody else's investment strategy. So we, uh, after about a year and a half, we gracefully bowed out of the competition. <laughs> and not long after, actually, Jonathan uh, decided to join us. And that's when uh, 
that's when we became partners. I think that was about summer of 2020. I want to talk, talk on that for one second. Not many people around the world realize just how entrepreneurial the Canadian pension plans are compared to basically everywhere else, everywhere else around the world. And, uh, and the kind of things that they do that, that really most folks in most other countries are too bu- bureaucratic and too mm-hmm. just stifled uh, culturally and, and limitations wise. Um, you know, I, I'm, you know, fellow Canadian here uh, mm-hmm. and uh, another fellow Canadian of ours who I'm a huge fan of is Bruce Flatt over at Brookfield and the way that they, yeah. you know, applied Warren Buffett's principles to real asset investing yeah. and uh, hearing them talk a lot about just what the Canadian pension plans and and the national plan as well have, have done to contribute and been a part of. Uh, it's just not a space that you typically think of for innovation coming out of a pension plan. Yeah, no, actually, that's true. The um, Canada Pension Plan, especially, has uh, a very deeply respected uh, quantitative investing outfit. Um, you know, Jonathan was there for, I think, almost 10 years, maybe more, actually. And so a lot of that, uh, I think, you know, he brought a lot of novel thinking, but I also think it was a, it's the system design of the pension plans that affords them to bring on people like him and to give them the, you know, the space they need to succeed and to do great work. Yeah. Well, um, I want to take a left turn and then I want to come back to this. Can you talk a little bit about your time at, at FreshBooks and selling to Shopify and, and some of these things in your background that led up to this place? I have a very anticlimactic background. I have a business undergrad degree, um, which doesn't, uh, doesn't tell you much, but I'm looking for a, a really great tweet that I came across this morning. Sam Altman from Y Combinator tweeted, uh, figure out the mission and then learn any skill you need to succeed at it. And this is generally how I've learned anything over the years. So, um, I was very fascinated by tech coming out of school. It was around the time that YouTube sold, sold to Google. Um, I wanted to understand the economics of an arrangement like that and how it made sense to spend that much money on something that hadn't even sniffed a dollar of revenue. Um, you know, ultimately I self-taught as far as I could before realizing that uh, I'd have to cut my teeth in the wild a little bit. And so I decided to take uh, my first ever job at FreshBooks and I worked directly for the CEO of FreshBooks, Mike McDermott, which is, which is great. Uh, it gave me a chance to see how product management was done, how, you know, data analytics were done, all kinds of different facets of an organization, like a software as a service company like that. And, uh, gave me enough just enough confidence to be dangerous. And so out I went I had to start my own company with some friends. We sold that company three years later to Shopify. It was a really fortuitous time, kind of a race to arms for design talent. And we had a lot of it. And, you know, I was only there for a cup of coffee at Shopify. Um, before I sort of went back into the field and went looking for another meaty challenge, which ended up being Delphia. Uh, did you guys disclose how much that sale was the exit? No, but I mean, anyone could have done the math based on the timing of it. It was pre IPO. So whatever the sale price was, you could just, you know, tack on like a couple zeros to the end, <laughs> like 10 years later, that's what it felt like. Uh, um, and, yeah. and what were kind of your biggest takeaways from those two experiences? I mean, I, I developed a really strong admiration for Toby's ability to think through systems at Shopify, Toby Luque, Shopify CEO. He's probably the best systems thinker I had come across. I met some really brilliant people there. And 
that just alerted me to how the game could be played at a higher level. Um, and so that, that was very motivating despite the short, short tenure there. But, you know, I think most of my lessons have been about, you know, learning on my own dime a little bit. Um, so having a, a lofty idea or a lofty vision and then having the, the pressure of having to allocate capital effectively in pursuit of that vision. Right. And there's a very real feedback loop that comes from, uh, allocating capital properly and allocating capital poorly. And so I shouldn't say my own dime. I'm, I'm grateful to the venture investors we've had along the way. So some of that learning has, has most of that learning has occurred on their dime, but some on mine as well. <laughs> you know, people talk so much about systems in business. And as you talk there about Toby, the CEO of Shopify, it sounds like he does it at a different level. Can you give us an example or, or what do you mean when he thinks about systems at his level? I can't remember the specifics um, of this story, but I, I do tell it in, in general terms quite a bit. So I, I worked on a, uh, it, Toby tasked me with basically trying to disrupt the mothership, uh, mothership being e-commerce. You know, we were going to, I was going to break Shopify into physical retail in a way that would cannibalize the core business. That was the goal, which is, you know, a great goal. And I remember working on a strategy for how to do this for a while, you know, really preparing for the 30 minutes that I was going to get with Toby after, you know, 60 days of pontificating or what have you. And it passed muster with everybody along the way, right? All the other right lieutenants, C-suite execs, et cetera. And they're like, oh yeah, this, this is Toby ready. You should take it. And I think it was eight minutes into me talking to him that he found the, the weak spot in the strategy upon which the whole thing would fold. And I just prefer thinking what a waste of, you know, two months, uh, I had just put in. Uh, but also like what an in incredible ability to kind of, if this, then that your way all the way down, uh, or another way of saying it is sort of, sort of to get to the root principles, uh, as quickly as humanly possible. And so that, that lesson, I, I became obsessed with that actually after that. So in Delphia, there's a, you know, people know Andrew is, uh, very determined to go five wise deep on everything. And we actually, in December, we have, um, end of year check-ins where I sit down with everybody in the company, which is, you know, 90 people now. And I effectively ask them, you know, what are we, what are you working on? Why are you working on it? <laughs> and we go deep, we go five wise deep. Um, it's just a really good practice. I think it's, uh, I think thinking in first principles is something that is, uh, a lifelong pursuit. Uh, and do I understand you started, you kind of like accidentally started one of the largest lean startup groups out there? Yeah. Yeah. So my partners, Satish and I, and some others in the Toronto community, you know, we were just fumbling our way in the dark, trying to run startups at the time. Toronto's startup scene was kind of burgeoning. And as we do, when we're fumbling our way in the dark, you reach out to others doing the same. And it just so happened that there was a, a framework for navigating called lean startup. Actually. And it was being popularized at the time by Steve Blank and Eric Reese and, and Ash Moria and all these folks. And so we picked it up. We picked up the mantle in Toronto and it ended up turning into a huge community, the second largest community in the world after the Valley, after San Francisco. And, uh, you know, Eric Reese and Ash Moria, they all came to town. Yeah, it was great. It was fun. 
It's a That's so great fun. way to, I, great way to meet like minds. Yeah, I'm, I'm such a Steve Blank fan. We've had him on the show a couple of times and I just can't oh, get man. enough. Yeah, yeah, such a fan. Um, so coming back to Delphia, um, how much have you guys raised so far? Are you sharing that? 77 million. Okay. And looking at this approach, uh, there's a couple of reasons I was really interested is because I basically don't understand at all what you do. So I, I'm like, you know, in other interviews where you talk about being compared to a DAO, I like, mm -hmm. th that's just like verbiage that my crypto friends use that I didn't know. I'm like watching like basic mm -hmm. videos on YouTube. What is a DAO, you know? Mm -hmm. And when you talk about quants, you know, like I, I like basically sold out to the complete other end of the spectrum of like Phil Fisher, uh, kind of like Phil Fisher, Ben Graham, you know, Charlie Munger approach. Mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. So let's start with, um, let's start with what quantitative investing is for, for all the beginners out there. If, if I could, if I could start by just acknowledging actually that if you look at Delphi on the internet right now, it, it. We are a victim of our own R&D in a way. Okay. You can tell that there's a lack of marketing personnel in the mix right now. Okay. In fact, one of, our, one of our core commitments this quarter is to clean it up and to reposition the company and, and really to bury the complexity at the end of the day. Okay. The, the average person has no patience to learn about quant investing, you know, doesn't care about a DAO. And in many ways, neither do we, right? They're just... They're just constructs that we need to get to a goal. You could replace DAO with co-op. You can replace quant with AI. Right? Just, we don't care. <laughs> and we're not, uh, we're not precious about this stuff. Okay. Um, so, okay. So then you asked about. Well, okay. Quant. Then I'll, I'll reframe my question. Um, All right. Great. So, let me ask this. There have been so many people in the past um, claiming to have something that can predict the future, especially for yeah. stock market pricing. Yeah. Right. Right. And, and most of those scenarios have ended up in tears. So what, what's yeah. different? What's different with yeah, you guys? Great. That's a great question. Okay. So let's first understand why people are after a quantitative approach in general. It's, you know, the cross section. So the, the ability to make 3000 bets or 2,500 bets is going to distribute your risk far better than making 20 concentrated bets as a fundamental investor, right? And so that the power of the cross-section, the statistical significance of that is, shouldn't be understated, but it's incredibly hard to do. And so many models have worked for a minute and then tripped on something. And the reason historically why they have tripped on something is they were trained to predict stock prices. And they were trained on data that said, what, you know, what drives a stock's price? And the reason why price was chosen as the target variable is because you have an observation of a stock's price every day. Therefore, you have lots of training data. But the challenge is that so many things move price. And it's impossible to train a model on all of them, especially in the sort of what's called the now casting environment or like the next three months, right? Yeah. You look at the stock market right now. And for the next 90 days leading up to whatever earnings announcement you want, the number of things that move price is almost infinite dimensional. You know, you can have a pandemic come out of nowhere, a surprise election, a war, etc. And your back test will not have been trained on it. So what we have instead from quant is a bunch of 
factors that describe effects we're seeing. We're seeing the effect of momentum, for example, right? And so we got this whole category of like factor-based invest investing, which is largely about applying descriptions to, to the, you know, the signatures we're seeing in the market from, from price. And a lot of folks have grown really disillusioned with this approach, right? It, it's, it's not really anchored in anything robust, although it's received a ton of inflow of capital. And Jonathan, my partner, our CIO from CPP, he, uh, he, he grew extremely disillusioned with this approach because factors ended up being, you know, watered down so much uh, that you could go get them from Goldman Sachs for, you know, fractions of a, of a dollar for a very low price. And so there's no, there's no edge in them at this point. Um, and he wanted something that was, yeah. Well, can we talk about that for a second? So another one of my investing heroes is Howard Marks, right? And he, mm. he talks about how like, you know, he was at University of Chicago back in the days when modern portfolio theory and the, the like yeah. the myth of an efficient market existed, right? right. And he yep. says at the same time, let's not throw the baby out with the bathwater. If you don't have information that other people, like if you have the same information as other people and you mm -hmm. don't have an information edge, why are you so confident you're going to outperform? And so that's why he's constantly talking about what is your information edge? And, and he's like, for exactly. people who are not thinking about that, of like, you know, how much of this is confidence and how much is this a factual information edge that the other yeah. players in the market don't have, right? So that you could make, a, make an investment confidently. Go, go ahead. That's it. Yeah, no, that's it, right? So either you believe an edge can be discovered or, or you don't. Um, but, you know, certainly... There are certainly examples of folks who have consistently found edge over time. And the way that Jonathan sort of solved the, the issue of infinite dimensions around stock prices was he changed the target. He said, well, is there a variable that's more stable than price, but that is co-integrated with price? And it turns out the answer to that is fundamentals, like stocks fundamentals, which sounds super intuitive. Um, but you have to realize a few things. Number one, fundamentals matter less in this horizon we are in right now. And they matter more if we fast forward the tape a little bit and we go, you know, one or two years down the road. And so what I mean by that is you, you've heard the old Benjamin Graham expression in the short run markets are a voting machine in the long run, they're a weighing machine. So what Jonathan effectively tried to do was skip over the voting machine chapter. Can we place bets that are sort of out in that weighing machine arena where markets actually reward the economic winners and punish the economic losers. And if we can make bets about fundamentals that resolve to an expectation of price further out in time and then isolate those bets, well, there's an edge to be found there. I'll stop there for a moment. Yeah. Can we, uh, can we start with fundamentals defined as what? Great. So fundamentals defined as expressions of cash flows on a balance sheet. So that might be sales or EBIT margin or free cash flow, for example. Okay. Or even debt. Uh, tell me about debt. Like a negative cash flow. Can, let, just for anybody who's not quite as nerdy as us, uh, can you explain Benjamin Graham's saying there about voting machine versus weighing machine? Right now, a stock's price moves around uh, with in, in accordance with the diversity of human thought 
right? Every time somebody's individual objective function changes in their life or whether or every time some institution thinks a recession might be around the corner, what have you, price is going to move for an equity there. What you want, though, is something that's like an order of magnitude less volatile, right? You want something that moves around and sort of changes with in accordance with the diversity of human interaction. So, you know, more people are buying Nike this quarter than last quarter, right? Human interaction versus like the objective function around the individual or the institution or the actor, let's call it, right? And so that's what I mean by uh, in the long run, markets are a weighing machine and how and, and the real market is the economy, right? There's the stock market, which is a, a representation uh, of the real market, but it's not the real market. They're not one in the same. Uh, can I say it my way? And you can tell me if you, if you, uh, Please, yeah, I a, yeah, I always look for better ways. Yeah. Well, I don't know if it's a better way, but, yeah. but, um, like to me, it's like in the short term, the stock market is, is a popularity contest. What's everybody's yeah. opinion about what this is going to be worth in the future. Yeah. And over the long term, the, yeah. like those opinions fluctuate quite unpredictably, but over the long term, the direction of those fluctuations is highly dependent on can they compound their cash flow or not? Are they like Bingo. are they genuinely making more money over time or not? That's right. That's okay. right. What we end up discussing is a very fundamental investor viewpoint of the world, right? This is kind of the lens a Charlie Munger would take is, you know, what is the expected discounted cash flow of this of this stock? But what's interesting is that quant has never approached the problem this way. Quant investing has always been about reacting to information as fast as humanly possible, right? Reacting to movements in price. And fundamental investors have been about prognosticating. What do we think about, you know, how the future is going to unfold? But there's a beautiful marriage between those two things where you use a quantitative toolkit to engage in the act of prognostication, right? To actually try and do 3,000 discounted cash flows every day anew based on new information, which we can't do as fundamental investors. We just don't have the, the overhead for that in our brains. But this is the, the reason to do it or to pursue it is because you get this beautiful distributed risk from placing 3,000 bets rather than 20. So this is not as far away as I thought it was going to be when we started the conversation from, from what I'm interested in life. So um, my question for you, I guess my next question is, um, what is the value of knowing those day-to-day? Because I, I completely see like if the AI, if, you know, if the computing horsepower can do this mm-hmm. analysis ongoingly. Mm-hmm. Um, is it so that, uh, what's the value of knowing that day by day instead of, you know, like if you're a longer term investor, like whether I got on today or tomorrow isn't as, if I'm going to, if I am going to hold, whether I got in mm-hmm. today or tomorrow isn't as big of a yeah. fluctuation in my long term effect. Um, yeah. So I'm guessing there's benefits, but I'll, I'll let you tell me what you think there. Yeah, so we're arbitraging surprise, right? Like there's there's no money to be made unless the outcome is surprising. Yep. And so an outcome is effectively an earnings announcement, right? That's when ground truth comes out and we all go, oh, wow, Netflix did better than we thought, right? Mm-hmm. Top line, bottom line, whatever. And so we, we're harvesting sort of when 
consensus has deviated away from our version of the expected ground truth. But it's, it's, it's unlikely that those two things will be so out of line for, for a long time because consensus is made up of all the actors in the market, really. So what we're after is surprise here. And so surprise could exist for three months or four months or five months or even six months. Um, but eventually surprise turns into consensus again, and you'd have to look for a new edge, a new informational edge in the data. If you wanted to make a new position or a new bet on Netflix again, let's say. So that's it. And are you guys only long yeah. or do you short as well? No, we're, we're well, so it depends on which audience we're talking about. So in accredited space, our hedge fund product is long short. And in non-accredited retail space, we have a long-only implementation of the alpha on top of a benchmark like the S&P 500. And for anybody who doesn't speak finance nerd, that's like, do you only bet when it's going up or do you bet when it's going down as well? Thank you, sir. So, yes. um, uh, so my, my next question is, um, when you're talking about information edge, is this things like you're, you're tracking people's sentiment towards Netflix before a before an earnings announcement comes out so that you have a guess on what those earnings are going to be like an informed guess before it's public or what, what are you tracking? Yeah. So a, a fundamental or like a cash flow expression like sales, we're interested in surprise, as I mentioned, but that fundamental gets broken down into some key performance indicators that the company uh, uses to arrive at sales. Right. And so I'll use the Netflix example since we're already there could be subscribers, could be time on site, could be churn, all these things may, you know, create an expectation of sales surprise. And consumer data is very helpful or can be very helpful in getting there. Um, obviously, if you can see credit card data before it's turned into uh, sales on Netflix's earnings announcement, that's great. If you can see, you know, visits to Netflix.com or the Netflix app, if you could see sentiment on Twitter, which is really just public opinion, right? Uh, surrounding Netflix or maybe Netflix titles that can also be very useful. And so they're just all these little tiny nonlinear relationships, all these little data relationships. And you don't want to over index. You don't want to bet the farm on any single one. What you want is, is some kind of consensus again, to emerge in the data where a lot of these like little observations or little relationships look like they agree with each other and it adds up to, you know, a confidence level that the market has it wrong right now. I, I can see, you know, with social media, moderate social media, monitoring tools or stuff like this, getting public publicly expressed sentiment, you know, what are people talking about HBO or Netflix on their Twitter accounts? Mm -hmm. Okay. But things like credit cards or some of those other things that you described, how do you guys track that? How does that, how do you guys gather that information? Yeah. So credit card data, most people aren't aware, but credit card data is for sale, right? If you are a hedge fund, you can buy consumer credit card data today. Okay. And you can buy location data. You can buy Twitter data. There's all kinds of data for sale. What's unique about Delphia is we're trying to grow our own proprietary data set. So we're trying to say to people. Well, you should be invested in this strategy at some level, because if you are and you're willing to contribute data, well, then you're the beneficiary. We'll do, you know, we'll do the research and the machine learning side of things, 
But if it turns into better returns, it's, you know, we want that to benefit you as well. Um, it's a, it's a bit more of a closed loop system in that regard. Um, did, does that answer your question or did I? Yeah. So essentially you're buying those data sources and, and augmenting it with your own. Is that? That's right. Yeah. So exactly it. So the majority of what we work with today is, is purchased. Um, and the hope is that the majority of what we work with in three to five years is, you know, proprietary. So it's interesting. Uh, it's interesting to me the way you guys have applied those principles. Uh, maybe shifting gears here. Um, how do you get the general public to sign up? What does marketing look like? How do you, how do you simplify? How do you invite people to? Because yeah. I mean, the idea of no fees is is a big advantage right off the bat. But what else? Yeah. So think of it like there's uh, a big feedback loop and a little feedback loop. So. The big feedback back loop is if you give data, we will turn that into better returns eventually. It just takes a long time to see that, right? I mean, we have an edge today. And so we can make the price of, you know, investing with us contribution of data. Um, but I think what we want is like a nice, a tighter feedback loop. And so the stuff we're building right now at Delphi is actually a, uh, about allowing individual people to explore the data themselves. So you might be a Robinhood investor. You might have a Netflix position. Maybe you're debating buying Netflix, buying more of it. Maybe you're debating selling Netflix. Well, you might also be interested in what insights we have in the data. And if you're contributing to that data set, well, you might be able to, to see those insights, right? Like a give to get program. And so that's the focus on what we're building right now is how do we, how do we show people trends in the data? Uh, and how do we show the right trends to the people who are interested in them? And I think that will ultimately be yeah, a key unlock in Delphi's growth. Uh, so when you say give data, what, what are people signing up to give you? A variety of things. So it could be credit card data. They might connect their credit card. It could be Amazon purchase history, LinkedIn, you know, Venmo, Twitter, Instagram. It, there's really any number of uh, data connections that we have available. Yeah. Okay. Building, Interesting. I I so, so how do you get the word out about this? I think performance will do its job over time, but I think that single name stocks are more social, right? People talk about Nike or they talk about Netflix or they talk about Disney, right? Bob Iger, for example, and Disney is all over the news today. Okay, great. Well, what does the data have to say about Disney right now? You know, what does that sentiment around Bob Iger look like in aggregate right now? Can anybody provide that to the average person? Because that's what hedge funds are working with. And so our job is really just to democratize that information to those that are actually creating it in the first place. And then how do you get people to find out you're doing that? Is it paid search, well, content my, marketing? Yeah. yeah, there's some degree of content marketing uh, that I think will will help. But you can imagine, you can imagine every stock having a landing page or every trend in the data having a landing page, right? A very long tail of trends. And ideally, you'll be able to do a search for something you care about, you know, like Netflix, what have you, and Delphi will show up in those rankings. That's one. I mean, the other obviously is that if you hold Netflix and somebody else holds Netflix and you you stumble onto a new source of information, we're going to incentivize you to share that information with others as well. Interesting. So, um, and then 
So, so is that largely SEO based then of how to get them on the landing page in the first place? It's kind of your approach. Largely word of mouth referral, some SEO. Yep. We're weighing some channel strategies as well, right? So how might we bring our active strategies to the robo uh, advisor world? who are all sort of working with the same investment strategies more or less and could benefit from differentiation. So that's, that's another area of exploration for us. Yeah. Interesting. So, um, thinking about where you go from here, what are kind of, what's kind of like the, the next big, big milestones you guys are headed for? Yeah. So some, some of the features we're talking about right now. So the ability to explore trends and which is to say, explore the data that is, um, that's the thing I'm most excited about on the, on the app side of the business on the research frontier got a big bet right now. Um, the big bet is that we can marry a really deep understanding of a company, a given company. I think we've been using Netflix throughout here, but if you knew Netflix perfectly and maybe Netflix competitors perfectly, you could predict perfectly all their key performance indicators, et cetera. It's not a, it, it, it doesn't necessarily translate into a cross section, right? A cross section of many, many companies in one portfolio. And so when you're talking about, you know, 2,500 companies in one portfolio, even if you're on Oracle mode or God mode, and you know, a company perfectly, uh, it's quite an exercise to get that information picked up in your machine learning model. That's trying to prioritize making bets on thousands of names. It's actually, uh, if we, if we pull it off, it's actually pretty ground. It's a whole other level of groundbreaking, which I don't think people have, have, have done yet. Let's talk another direction of, you know, there's not as many tech companies that, that, uh, go through all of the jump through all the hoops, you know, with the securities mm. exchange commission and, and to yeah. be, uh, to be able to do a number of things that you guys have done. Um, how did you make that decision on what you were and weren't going to do on that side of things? If you think about, I'll use Tesla as a good example. Sometimes when you're trying to build something so ubiquitous, right? So sometimes when you're trying to build the world's most powerful data set, for example, it's too esoteric to sort of think of it in an unbounded way. And so you've got to, you've got to give it a context, right? It needs a leg to stand on. And we thought, okay, investing is a good leg to stand on and specifically quantitative investing, et cetera. And then you, you, you whittle it all the way down to the first implementation of the data, right? Which is what we have today. And so it's like, we've, it's like, kind of like we've got a vertically integrated business right now, not unlike Tesla, which you might see as more of a battery company in the fullness of time, rather than an automobile company, right? Or an energy company in the fullness of time, rather than just an automobile company, right? Automobiles are the right first use case for those batteries, but there's a reason why Tesla invests in the gigafactory and why the gigafactories market opportunity might be greater than automobiles itself, or at least Tesla's automobiles. And so similarly, we think if we can cultivate this data set, get it to, you know, a million people, 2 million people all contributing together. Well, actually that's enough data that you can now start to build all kinds of incredible new products on top of the, on top of the data, like, uh, you know, a credit card with lower fees or you know, better, better insurance for people, things like that. 
because all of those products, they all bottom out on effectively better prediction. If you can do better prediction, you're going to make a better product. And so for us, investing is, you know, the, the tip of the spear. It, it leads me to another question of mine. Um, folks who are taking on such difficult challenges, uh, having the right team makes so much of a difference. What kind mm. of recruiting principles do you have for other CEOs out there who might be listening today? Recruiting is my favorite, one of my favorite parts of the job. Um, yeah, so I have like two principles with how I work when I do a startup. One is you pick a very lofty mission, one that is highly improbable, but a lot of fun to go after. And then the second principle is you assume because it's so hard to go after that, it, you know, at the end of the day, it might be about the journey rather than the destination. And there's a good chance, right? And so then you, you want to make sure you love the journey and loving the journey requires loving the people you're, you're on it with. And so we, we've attracted a lot of really brilliant people. Uh, all of whom are very low ego and there's a lot of heterogeneity in the team. So people who come who are like crypto native, people who are, you know, from old school asset management, people who are from consumer fintech, et cetera. And so then you end up needing a lot of operating principles at the company that help enable such a heterogeneous group to communicate effectively with each other and to understand each other and to uh, to innovate by sort of colliding with each other. And I, I think everything new and novel comes from standing at the intersection of, of two things, right? And so you can have two or three or four things crisscrossing in an organization and a really low ego around, you know, whose discipline is more important to the mix. And I think that's a, a great starting point for yeah, powerful team. Let's break this down a little further. When it comes to deciding, deciding on the right person, when you're, you know, mm -hmm. whether it's screening and interviewing and things like this, what's a principle for you to say, like, to tell the difference between people who look good on paper versus the people you really want? Yeah. So the first thing I look for, which is like a very technical term, but maybe you can find me a better, a better word for it. Uh, how orthogonal is this person to our current DNA as a company? And orthogonal is, it's kind of like, a, how perpendicular is this person <laughs> in a way to what we've got going on? Um, because I, I love when we come across somebody who's just going to bring an entirely new perspective. Um, and so we organize our, our, around that quite a bit. And then, yeah, what, like, what are the exercises we do? We, I mean, we interview, we, we, we literally practice our principles every week. So we have a, a weekly Friday wins meeting where the whole company shows up. It's the ugliest slide deck you've ever seen, but there's no right or wrong. You can put any win on that slide deck. The whole company contributes to it. Um, and to kick it all off on Friday before we go into the wins and all the kudos and all that, we, you know, we just shout out people as we look at them on Zoom, we shout out people who exemplified one of our seven principles. It's just, it's a really great way for people to on a weekly basis, be celebrated for, uh, working in alignment with sort of the agreements we've made with each other. And, uh, and you know, we screen for those principles too in interviews, right? And so like, what's an example, how you screen, how we'd screen. Yeah, I think, well, I mean, we, we talked a lot about, so. Reasoning from first principles is one of our seven principles, right? And that is like a five wise exercise in a nutshell. 
So we, we would apply that in an interview. We would say, you know, tell us about a time and they'd give us an, they'd give us an example and we'd, and we'd go down the rabbit hole of, okay, well, why did you do it that way? Or why did you prioritize that factor? Why was that the determinant, right? All the way down until you get to either some level of defensiveness where it feels like a kind of like a stiff, well, just because, right? Or, or you get to, you know, Deeper really thinking. well-reasoned argument all the way through and through. And it's, uh, it's illuminating. I mean, Jonathan and I, my, my partner and I, we left a meeting the other day. We were in a taxi and, you know, we disagreed on what we had heard in that meeting. And we did, we kind of did it in the cab. And, you know, we, you know, as soon as you unroot the position, then you get down to, uh, like what are the principles that are driving each of our reactions? We were, we were good. It took us about five minutes in the back of a cab. Right. And so just a, just, I think just repetition. Yeah. Okay. So once you've identified somebody that you like, how do you get them to like you? Well, the good thing about really brilliant people is they want meaty challenges. So this goes back to the first kind of, you know, thing I said, which is like, you got to give people a big mission that is intellectually stimulating and hard to accomplish. Um, you only really get a few of those in a career, maybe less than a few. Right. Um, and so, you know, Delphi is trying to turn data into an asset, like an asset class, even it's just, it's just, it's just so, like it's so far out there, but, but, but if I said to you, Hey, there's a good chance in 20 years from now, everyone's going to need capital and labor is not going to get us anywhere in, on the road to financial prosperity, or it's barely going to move the needle. I, you know, there's a, I could, I bet I could make a strong case that that's true, that the reason we have this wealth divide is because the circumstances favor those with capital as opposed to those with labor. And so then the game becomes, well, how do we get capital into more people's hands? Right. And so, you know, folks see where we're going with this, right? We're not, we're not shy about it. It's, we, we think it's a requisite for financial prosperity in the future that people are using all of their available assets data inclusive and that gets people out of bed and then because it's not less than a 25 year journey they're stimulated and activated from the get-go right we we can't afford to sit around and just you know wait for the future to unfold here we have we're we're trying to pull it forward and uh yeah and it's going to take people from all walks <laughs> It is funny to think about where prosperity comes from. And like, you think about leverage over calories, right? Like when humans use calories to feed themselves, it, it's, mm -hmm. not a, it's not a real net positive system, right? Because you use mm -hmm. so many calories to find the calories to then eat, yep. right? Yep. But as soon as, yeah, you can employ capital instead of your, instead of your labor or employ energy, you know, like you, you look at as, as different countries get access to much more energy and they get mm -hmm. that duplicative leverage effect, right? Yeah. It's, it's such a key to, um, healthcare, yeah, healthcare, nutrition, life expectancy, but also just so, so many other aspects of life because of that, you know, it's like Steve Jobs talking about how the bicycle is supposed to be, or it's the computer is supposed to be a bicycle for the mind. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, mm -hmm. so I, I like your, uh, I like your cause getting more capital in people's hands. Yeah. Um, getting, getting energy to flow in like a positive sum closed loop system. Yes. It's a powerful thing. Yeah. Um, well, wait, 
if people want to go in the app store and get it themselves, where, where, what should they be searching? Oh, you can just look up Delphia on the Play Store or the App Store. It's D-E-L-P-H-I-A. And you can create an account with as little money as you want in there. Uh, mostly it's about, you know, putting a little skin in the game just to see if we see if we can pull this off. That's what I tell people. That's fun. Well, um, as we wind down here, what do you want to leave people with? I have a belief that your mission isn't big enough if there aren't people on your team who don't think it's possible. <laughs> it doesn't mean they won't sign up to work on it, but you should have a, a you should be working on a large enough vision or mission that, that you've got a good contingent of folks who are wondering whether this is actually possible. <laughs> I love it. Okay. Well, thanks for making time for this. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Okay. Bye everyone.